Two chapters, 1 Samuel, beginning chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who sits enthroned between the cherubim. And... Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting, by, sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses, and also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth, but was overcome by her labour pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 
After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who went to Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the elders of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around us to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Let me lead us briefly in prayer and then we'll look at this wonderful part of 1 Samuel together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and you speak to us in your word for our good, uh, that we might uh, be trained in righteousness, correct and rebuked as needed and made to be more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray that uh, you will do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, friends, it's not uncommon to hear people speaking about God, beginning with a phrase that goes something like, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. And whatever comes out next usually puts God into the category of someone you'd cry out to if you're in a near-death experience or perhaps before a really tough exam, but who's otherwise relegated to the sidelines of our lives. One of my favourite comedic takes on this phenomenon comes, of course, from The Simpsons, when Lisa sees that her brother Bart has been driven, probably for the first and only time, in desperation to prayer out of fear that he'll have to repeat a year at school. And so she quips as she sees him praying, prayer, the last refuge of a scoundrel, thereby highlighting that God has indeed been relegated to the position of the genie of last resorts. As someone once even said to me, I like to think of God as a woman because I'm just so much more comfortable with that. A personal comfort was literally the standard by which they chose to ascribe to God his characteristics and definition. Now, as Christians, along with the creators of The Simpsons, you and I could easily be tempted to laugh in mocking derision at such notions. And 
it would actually be fitting to do so because there is something profoundly ridiculous about humans seeking to create and define the one who is himself the creator and definer of us. But it could just as easily be hypocritical. For we, who know the true and living God, are yet so often culpably ignorant about his attributes. If someone said to you or I that the God of the Scriptures is impassable or ineffable, would we know what they were talking about? In a bygone era, Christians would have been both familiar with and delighted to discuss such attributes of the divine. I mention this because in our passage today, one of the most important attributes of God, namely his sovereign power, is brought into sharp focus. What does it mean to say that God has sovereign power? And why is this attitude, uh, sorry, this attribute of deep importance for us who live under the lordship of Jesus? Why ought we to know that that's what God is like? Well, that's what we're going to learn uh, from 1 Samuel 4 and 5 this morning. The first section highlights an almost universal problem. That is that fallen humanity always tend towards religion, I guess you'd call it, but by which we usually mean some kind of attempt to manipulate divine power for our own good, for our own ends. By the time we get to 1 Samuel 4 and 5, God has begun to address Israel's leadership crisis, first and foremost, by giving his word. He's doing this through the boy, unexpectedly, Samuel to whom God revealed that his judgment on the current leadership, namely the house of Eli and his wicked sons, would soon be carried out. Samuel is now grown up, and 4 verse 1, his word, therefore God's word, including the word of judgment against Eli's sons, has now come to all Israel. If you remember from previous weeks, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had treated the Lord's sacrifices with contempt and turned his temple into a den of adultery, Hence, all Israel were told the judgment was coming. Here's how it plays out. Continuing from verse 1, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, like all the times before, Israel smashed the Philistines. Except, no, uh, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And we don't know what this war was about, presumably territorial. We don't know who initiated it, but it doesn't matter. What's important to know is that Israel's defeat was unexpected. Verse 3, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They rightly recognised that defeat came not from the Philistines, but ultimately from the Lord. And they were also right to look for the reason the Lord allowed their defeat. And given that all Israel knew God's house was being treated with contempt by Hophni and Phinehas, it shouldn't have been long before they worked out the answer. Just like it was in the days of Joshua, when Israel attacked Ai, but were unexpectedly defeated on account of the sin of Achan, They should have worked out that they needed to purge the evil from among them before going out to battle again. But sadly, rather than seeking the Lord for an answer, they resort to the thing that humans have tended to resort to since the fall, an attempt to manipulate divine power 
for their own ends. Trying to make God deal with us on our terms rather than dealing with him on his terms. So verse 3, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now God's covenant included the promise that he'll go before Israel and he'll defeat their enemies. So the idea is if they take the box, which we call an ark, that that covenant is, is kept in as, as, a, as a memorial, as a symbol, well, God will surely make good on his promise. But God's covenant also teaches that he'll enable the enemies to triumph should his people be acting in rebellious disobedience and breaking his covenant. Like the Sunday Christians of our day, these people wanted God to be their saviour, but not to obey him as their Lord. Verse 4, so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. You'd think that would have been a hint that this is a bad idea. The God who sits enthroned like a powerful ruler who has made a covenant in which he stipulates that treating his house and his offerings with contempt will result in defeat is now being led out by the two people who have rebelled against him the most. But instead of responding with worry, the Israelites go nuts. Verse 5, when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. That's a tragic thing, really. This reminds me of a church I knew about a long time ago that when looking for a new rector had the mindset of, we're going to get a CEO for our church. The idea was that a really strategic, entrepreneurial, visionary business person is the kind of person God will use to strengthen and grow this church. A few years after they got their CEO rector, at least half the church had left and the other half felt pretty downtrodden. It's easy for us to celebrate what we think is God's power whilst at the same time forgetting what he has made plain by his word. God, being completely in control, turns the celebration of the Israelites into something that works against them. Verse 6, hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And Hebrews probably used as a derogatory term. They're those Jews, you know. What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? But when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Plural. They are the gods who struck the, down the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness, uh, which is not quite true. This is a nice little glimpse into the character of pagan ignorance. Uh, the Philistines couldn't conceive of the notion that there's only one true God, and so they've filtered the bits of information they've heard about Yahweh through their own cultural lens and decided that he's one God among many. Yet he's done enough to create great fear. And for the Philistines, that fear becomes a catalyst for rallying their strength. So verse 9, be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men and fight. Uh, side note, PSA, being a man is not defined as being someone who fights. Uh, real men are people who wrestle in prayer. 
Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, not surprisingly, died. And so the God luck charm didn't work. And God's word of judgment regarding Eli's sons came to pass. The Israelites certainly saw the divine power of God, but it was a power exercised in accordance with his word and not in accordance with the intentions of his people who had ignored it. It's a tragic thing to expect you can compel God to be your saviour if at the same time you have no interest in revering him as your Lord. God's power is absolute and he's certainly able to save but it's a sovereign power. It's exercised in accordance with his will, not ours. And his will has been made clear, thank God, in his word. And it will always prevail. The other part of God's judgment here is that his glory then departs from Israel. And the next section, on the same day of the battle, a Benjamite, which is like, I like to think of a little guy because they're like the smallest tribe. A Benjamite dresses himself in the clothes of mourning and runs into the city at Shiloh. Eli is sitting uh, at the gate, I think, and watching for the result, which is ironic because he's now so old that his eyes don't work. The appearance of the Benjamite would have already communicated that Israel were defeated, but Israel's leader, the priest Eli, isn't able to see what's going on and he needs to have things explained. So verse 16, the Benjamite told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18 is an interesting verse. When he mentioned the ark of God... Eli fell back out of his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Literally, he had judged Israel, I think, 40 years. Now, at first, it looks like Eli was concerned primarily for the well-being of the ark and therefore concerned for the honour of God. But Eli's concern for the ark is actually an indication that he knows that this is the judgment of God. God's word has now been confirmed for Eli. God himself is behind the death of Eli's sons. God himself has orchestrated the capture of the ark and the defeat of Israel. Fittingly, Eli's leadership comes to an inglorious end. You see, the word for glory in Hebrew also happens to translate as heavy. And in Eli's case, there's a bit of a a sarcastic irony. What's the glory of his long leadership? Well, the loss of the ark, two wicked sons put to death, and he falls off his chair and breaks his neck under his own weight, glory. Uh, The one and only Matthew Squire earlier this week helpfully reminded me that uh, in that classic film, Back to the Future, Marty McFly also uses the word heavy to describe something amazing and powerful, but also when it's kind of bad. 
God also orchestrated another devastating event at the same time by which we're given a sad lesson on what's happening with his people. Uh, Phineas's now widowed wife goes into labour and dies in childbirth. But just before her death, verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and husband. Uh, now, the name Ichabod means, where is the glory? Given Israel's circumstances, it reads like a nationalistic cry of lament. It's like saying, is there any hope left? Is there any hope for us? It's the kind of thing, actually, that you and I can occasionally arrive at on an individual level. I've sinned yet again in this same area. Is there still any hope for me? It's that sort of thing. Where is the glory? No matter how hard I try to be a good parent, a good child, a good friend, a good spouse, I've somehow stuffed things up again. Is there still any hope for me? Where is the glory? Well, we're left with that question hanging. And we move now to find out what happens when the glory or when the heaviness of Yahweh, the Lord, moves into the camp of pagan sinners who don't know him. And it's a combination of events that are both funny and devastating. Funny in the sense that the next passage is designed, I think, to make us laugh at the sheer stupidity of idolatry. But devastating, of course, because God is terrifying in his holy wrath. So chapter 5 and verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, I didn't know this earlier in the week, so sorry to my growth group, but we know from elsewhere in the Bible that even though the Philistines have lots of gods, Dagon seems to be a bit like the final boss. He's the big god of the Philistines. The symbolism here in placing the ark of Yahweh in Dagon's temple seems to be a way of saying, our God kicked your God's butt, so we are the champions. Which makes verse 3 all the more funnier. When the people of Ashdod rose the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of Yahweh. So Dagon bows down before the God of gods, who happens to be the only true and living God. And then with laughable irony, continuing in verse 3, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So the Philistines helpfully rescue their almighty God. Then verse 4, but the following morning when they rose there, was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of Yahweh. And this time his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. Yet despite this clearest most obvious demonstration that Yahweh alone is God of gods and that there's something so laughable and pathetic about having to pick up your God and put him back together, the Philistines simply cannot help but to continue exchanging the truth for idolatry. And as is the case with most religion to this day, they persist in superstition. Verse 5, I think you're meant to read this with a bit of mocking derision as well. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Something bad happened to our God in that place, so we'd better not go there lest something happens to us too. Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus are rightly saddened 
that even within Christendom, you can find religious buildings in which there are all sorts of statues and in which there are certain sections you're not allowed to step over lest you incur some kind of negative outcome. People taken captive by such false religion look more like pagan Philistines than the people of God. We are right to fear that instead of the glory of the Lord, they'll see the heaviness of his hand. That's how it was with the Philistines. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. The people of Ashdod saw what was happening. They said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. And so they even admit that Yahweh is more powerful than their almighty Dagon. You'd think they'd do the obvious thing and get rid of Dagon and embrace Yahweh. But again, the Bible teaches us to not underestimate the ease with which the the pagan, the sinful mind, can so easily be led astray to the utter stupidity of idolatry and mysticism and superstition. Verse 8, so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? Now, why this happens, I've got no idea. Maybe they thought that the local god at Gath had certain qualities that would make him impervious to Yahweh. Uh, that We know there's some giant warriors at Gath. We're going to meet one later. So maybe they thought the people were stronger. Who knows? But in any event, they moved the ark of the God of Israel. And of course, that doesn't work. Verse 9, but after they had moved at the Lord's hand, that is the same heavy hand, was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So <laughs> they tried the same thing again. Verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God was entering Ekron, now these people finally worked it out. They've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. It's a comedy of errors, but it's a comedy that's also quickly becoming a black comedy. They thought they had the victory, but now they're back to where they were before, being terrified of the God that had come into the camp of those Hebrews. Their God, Dagon, has lost his hands, but the hand of Yahweh is extremely powerful and active. The only obvious way to end this, if you're not going to bow down to Yahweh and beg him for mercy, which you'd delight to give, is to send him back to the disobedient people that he had yet chosen to be his kingdom of priests. So verse 11, they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death, as is the case today, had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of that city went up to heaven. That last line is especially devastating. The Philistines, who had defied Yahweh, fearing that they would become slaves of the Hebrews, what do you know? They now find themselves crying out to heaven, just like the Hebrews did when they were slaves of the Egyptians. Now, if we step back from this saga for a bit, we're given a teaching surprising enough to make our ears tingle. Yahweh's power is exercised greatly, but it is done not in accordance with the will either of the Israelites or of the Philistines. It's done in accordance with 
his own perfect will. That's what it means to say God is sovereign. It is his will, his plan alone that will come to pass and nothing can ever hinder that. He still did go before his people and defeat their enemies, just as he also upheld his covenant promise to bring judgment upon those who had treated him with contempt. God's power cannot be harnessed by any human means, but it will definitely be exercised in accordance with his sovereign will. And thankfully, thank God, literally, that sovereign will has been revealed to us in his word. We have it. And most strikingly of all, the way God exercises his sovereign power shows us that when the glory of the Lord departs, he single-handedly achieves glorious victory. I'll say that again, but with a picture on the screen. When the glory of the Lord departs, he single-handedly achieves glorious victory. The Israelites deserved to have the glory of the Lord depart, and yet in his kindness, he still achieved the victory for them. And so it is, of course, with all of us who know Jesus, in whom we see all the glory of the Lord, and by whose apparent defeat he crushed the ultimate enemies of sin and death with a heavy hand, a glorious hand. God's sovereign power is demonstrated most strikingly at the cross. And the main point of these two chapters also, I think, serves as an obvious implication point for us. You can't manipulate God to suit your plan. Both the Israelites and the Philistines tried it, and many people today assume it. Most religion is based on that idea. But you can't manipulate God to suit your plan. What you can do is align your life with God's glorious plan, which will certainly come to pass because he's got all the sovereign power. That's the way that his sovereign power becomes beneficial to us, working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, what might it look like in practice? What's some concrete stuff uh, that, that sort of demonstrates that instead of trying to manipulate God for our ends, we're aligning our lives with him? Well, here's four areas quickly uh, where, where I think you can see that pretty concretely. The first and really obvious one is that you may still at the moment stand in opposition as an enemy of God and his people. That is, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. Uh, you cannot stand against him. You will be defeated. Your only hope is to repent and put your trust in Jesus. Uh, one of the favourite uh, parts of the Bible for me is Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul is preaching to a bunch of philosophers in the Areopagus, and he says, uh, the God who made the world is Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by hands. Uh, he doesn't get served by us as if he needed anything. No, he gives us everything, life and health and breath and all that stuff. And... and uh, you should not therefore think that he's like, you know, Dagon, like a statue or something that you can sort of pray to and if you get it right, he'll help you out. No, no, no. Now, in the past, God did overlook such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God's sovereign power has been displayed at the cross of Jesus and it will be displayed fully and finally 
in the return of Jesus, your only hope is to align yourself with him rather than against him. If you've not yet obeyed the command to repent and put your faith in Jesus, do it before it's too late. Do it instead of risking defeat. Second thing, uh, don't fall for the scam that you can manipulate God's power. Sadly, this is something that the church has has been sucked into time and time again. Over the last century, it happens especially uh, concerning the role of God the Holy Spirit. The idea is if you pray a certain way or do a certain thing or, or create a gathering in a certain style, that God the Holy Spirit will there come and do certain things for you if you get the formula right. Jesus in John chapter 3 says the wind blows where it wants, referring to the work and the power of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right at the beginning, when Paul's going to speak about the difference, for example, between self-serving tongues and other person serving prophecy, the first thing he says in that big argument is, don't be deceived. Don't you remember that you can so easily be led astray to pagan mysticism? 1 Corinthians 12. Third thing, once you align yourself with God's will in accordance with his word, there's a certain relief. You don't need to worry about equally good choices. This is something hard for us because uh, in our culture, we have the power of choice more than almost anyone else. But the power of choice, ironically, can become something really constricting. Uh, you can do job A or job B. Both of them pay all right. Uh, uh, both of them allow you to take some flexible time to go and teach scripture at school. Great idea. And uh, both of them are equal distance from your house. We can get so amazingly anxious and worried about what's actually the right thing. Well, God hasn't said anything in his word about this. That means you can just relax, just make a choice. I mean, if, one of the, if job A is a hairdresser and job B is being a hitman, well, God has said something very deliberately about that. And you will know whether you're going in accordance with his will or not, right? Obviously, don't become a hitman. Uh, but God's sovereign power is... Well, he's sovereign power. And if you're not doing anything to sort of put yourself against it, you don't need to uh, try and add an extra hour to your life by worrying. Last thing, and I say the best till last, don't let sin get the better of you because God will bring his good work to completion. You see, just as decisive as God's victory, just as inevitable as God's victory was always going to be, so it is equally inevitable that if he has chosen you, if you call Jesus your Lord and Saviour, that he cannot but bring you to glory. You might go kicking and screaming on your way to heaven because you have that same stupid sin that you're feeling really down about yet again. God's sovereign power means that that will not stand against you. you. You can't actually sort of thwart the will of God by your sinfulness. That's one of the most wonderful things about knowing Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some people watching this now who feel like those people that give up cigarettes, but they really have to give up 10 times before they get rid of it. Yeah, and just look, for years I've been hopeless with my prey, hopeless with my my Bible reading, right? And here I am again, I'm at sort of ground zero. Then be at ground zero. God in his sovereign power will bring his good work to completion. Don't whip yourself this week. Heck, just get up in the morning and say, do I believe that God is powerful enough 
to bring the good work that he's done in me to completion, Philippians 1.6. If that's all you do for the next seven days, that will be wonderful. Because actually that's the kind of thing that, uh, where you actually do start to see the power of God at work. I'm going to conclude very briefly in prayer and then uh, I get to hand over to Gav who's actually here in person and he's going to continue to lead us in prayer. But let's pray for now. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your sovereign power and we thank you that you've revealed to us how your sovereign power uh, is going to work, that it's only ever going to work in accordance with your will revealed in your word. Father, where we've uh, foolishly stood against you, foolishly ignored your word and foolishly tried to have your saviour but not Lord please correct us in the power of your spirit that works in us and thank you for the wonderful assurance that uh, no matter how badly we stuff up we cannot thwart your sovereign power that you will bring the good work to completion uh, on the day of the Lord Jesus it's in his name we pray and give thanks amen thanks Gav